Hello, and welcome back to Talking Time. Asband, here with my friend Chad Rutzaitner and Gordon. Our DAP today, Masachad Chagiga, DAP Chav Dalad, page 24. Well, this may be the last podcast that you listen to before we, or the last opportunity we have to announce our CM. We are doing our CM on Seder Moed about two days earlier on Sunday. Uh, if you have not signed up, please find the link on our Facebook page or our WhatsApp group, or you can email me or Anne. Uh, we have a really nice uh, group of speakers lined up who will be sharing some reflections either on Chagiga or on finishing Seder Moed and sort of concluding more than two years of learning Dafyomi together. Um, there will also be a recording available of our CM as well. And we really look forward to uh, starting a Vamos with you uh, later this week, which is going to feel very, very different. And it's about 122 Dafim. Uh, so we're not going to have a CM for quite some time. So this is going to be uh, the last time that I guess we all get to see each other virtually over Zoom for quite a while. So uh, we look forward to seeing. Um, so this staff is going to finish up our discussion about the Ma'alot, about these 11 stringencies uh, that the Mishnah describes. Um, four of them appear in this staff, and because there's four, I'm really going to talk about them outside of the of the DAP as opposed to actually reading inside the DAP um, and just sort of go through them quickly. I think it's interesting just to see, again, first of all, the Gemara does not go through all of them in the Mishnah. It doesn't have a comment on each one. And what is the issue that they wanted to discuss about each one, right? We saw before some of them range from like, what's the source for this? or not quite understanding what it is. Um, and here they do a couple of different things with the four that they have. So they mention the eighth stringency of Kodesh over Truma, which is that Kodesh has a Revi, while Truma only has a Shlishi. So what does this mean? We've talked about before that there are different levels of Truma, right? In other words, the actual thing that gives tame. If you touch that, you're called an avhatuma. If you touch the avhatuma, you become a shani, which is a second. For truma, you get to the level of shlishi. So if something touches the shani under circumstances, you become a shlishi. And for kodesh, you can even have a level of a for a fourth. And so the Gemara basically wants to understand how does the Mishnah know this, right? Like, that for Kodesh, there's a Rabi, whereas for Truma, it only stops at a Shlishi. It only stops at a third, and Kodesh can have a fourth. And so they quote here a Brisa that basically learns out a Kalvachomer, right? So Kalvachomer, we've seen before, is sort of a method of, of learning, I guess, or uh, of reasoning, I guess. And is that how you would say it? It's, it's, it's a method of reasoning um, where basically it literally means lenient and strict. And the idea basically is, is that we derive a uh, from an, following through on a logic that, in other words, if a case that is generally strict has like a particular leniency, then a case that is generally lenient will certainly have that leniency. That's kind of like the way that I would sort of understand it. So here, uh, what they basically try to um, what they try to say here is is they go through this case of a person who muksar kipurim, which we've learned about before, which is a person who has. Uh, basically needed to do um, in order to become a uh, tahor, uh, except they have not brought the, uh, they, they haven't brought the korban yet that they needed to do. So Moksar Kippurim, so they're sort of kind of considered tahor. Um, so Moksar Kippurim can eat truma, but is not allowed to eat kodesh. So they basically learn a kalbahomer like this, that if there's a tuma level of shlishi is puzzle for truma, then certainly there has to be for Kodesh. So it's a Kalva Homer that's basically used to make a Revi for Kodesh 
right? And how do they know from the Torah that there's even a Shlishi for Kodesh? And then they basically bring a, a Pasuk in order to prove that. But the idea is, is that they want to, it's not necessarily, uh, they want to understand the reasoning behind it. And that's what they do by this process of Kal Vahomer. Then we get to the ninth stringency of Kodesh over Truma. And this to me is actually the most interesting one. I don't know if you felt this way, Anne, which was about having that one hand, right? What if you have that one hand is Tame and one hand is Tahor? So if you have one hand that's Tame uh, and one you can eat Truma with the Tahor hand. But if you have one hand that's Tame and one hand that's Tahor with Kodesh, you actually have to immerse both of the hands in order to make um, both of them Tahor. I thought this it gives it gives new meaning to you know if the one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing. Yes, exactly. And I thought this was like a really classic sort of like Talmudic argument, right? Kind of the idea that you sort of had like this one hand here that can't touch anything, but sure, your truma um, with the other hand, and you can tell the Gemara is bothered by this Mishnah because they actually spend a lot of time on this, right? Like they they try to understand. You know, maybe Rav Shizbi comes and he says, maybe this only applies when the Tahor hand is touching, you know, that the Tama hand touches the Tahor hand. So, of course, you would have to amuse, you know, do it. Then Abai brings a Brisa that totally contradicts this. Um, you know, then they then they go through a whole case, which is, OK, we're going to say that maybe your Tama hand, you know, for Truma doesn't necessarily make the Tahor hand, uh, you know, Tame for Kodo, for Kodesh, it's definitely a problem. But what about can your Tame hand make another person's hand Tame for Kodesh, which is a great Talmudic question. And so they go through, they go through that, uh, they go through that again. Um, and Rav Yochanan, which is ultimately even Shlakish gets swayed by him, that even if he touches his friend's hand, he can make that hand also Tame for Kodesh. So it's like a very Talmudic argument. And then finally, they have the 10th mala of Kodesh over Truma, which is one can eat Truma foods that are dry with hands that are tame. Right? For that sort of the way something becomes tame is it has to be a mukshar latuma, it becomes wet. And sort of by the wetness that it transmits to another. So if you have tame hands, um, you're allowed to eat dry Truma, basically. Um, but you cannot do that with Kodesh foods. You can't eat uh, a dry Kodesh. And so here they do one of those things, which is like what the Mishnah is teaching is obvious, right? Of course, you can't eat Kodesh foods that are dry with, with hands that are tummy, right? Because Kodesh foods are going to be, they can get Tuma even even when they're dry because they're Chibat HaKodesh, right? So it goes through that. So the answer they give is, again, one of these interesting, they find this one specific case. And what's the case? It's a case where one's friend whose hands are tahor places food in the other person's mouth, right? Either places food in his mouth by using a reed or you, uh, you could put food in your own mouth by using a utensil, using like a flat reed or a flat spoon, which are things that cannot be makabal tuma. Um, and then it goes into, and then he wants to eat onion, which are things that can transmit, of hulan, which can transmit tuma. So even though his tummy hands will not make the chulin hands tummy because everything is dry, the rabbis basically prohibited placing the chulin food in his mouth when he's already eating kodash. Saliva in his mouth, right, can make his tummy hands wet. 
Then he would touch the chulin, making them tame, which then would make the kodesh tame. Now this made my head spin and I had to read it a few times. But I think again, what this drives home is this was like a very key part of people's like religious and halachic lives. And I don't know, Anne, I basically would not eat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, I found we had a a cool learner send in a comment, which I found to be, um, you know, I think helpful here. And I'm only not naming you because we didn't ask your permission in advance to name you. So, you know, if you want to be named, let us know and we'll do so. But um, she said that, you know, it's a kind of thing that made absolute, it was totally head spinning until all this pandemic, right? Where you know that let's say you were very careful about what you were touching, but now you needed to, you, I don't know, you you used one hand on a doorknob or a or an elevator button or something like that. And now you're, you have this awareness that that hand must be washed, you know, 20 seconds, you know, with soap, da 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 And you have like this like awareness of what is okay and what is not okay. And I feel like that that kind of thing must have been built into people's functioning so that I think that they didn't have an issue eating because it was like so normal, right? It's just not normal for us. It takes a while to internalize that kind of thing. A hundred percent. And then I'll just, you know, conclude with the last one, the 11th one, which is an onain, right? Somebody who's in that period of time before they buried a loved one. Um, um, and also somebody who's muhsar kipurim, they need, they need to go to the mikvah in order to eat kodesh. And the reason is, is because up until that point, they were actually prohibited from eating Kodesh, but they were allowed to eat Truma. So therefore, the rabbis required sort of as to acknowledge this transition that they had to go to the mikvah in order to eat Kodesh. So a very interesting mission took a couple of days. Again, what I got out of this is really sort of the intricacies of keeping this tummy and Tahor. You know, how did they keep everything straight? The different categories of food. Not non-judgmentally, all of this was taught. I mean, we've said this before. Being tummy was not necessarily a bad thing. It just was a matter of fact thing, uh, right? Sometimes your hands were tummy. Something, sometimes something was tummy. And it was just a question of how did you handle that halakhically? Okay, so now I'm going to jump. We have the another Mishnah. The next Mishnah is at the very bottom of this stuff. It even goes on to the top of the next stuff. And the issue here brings us back to the fact that there's different levels of food to begin with, right? That there's chulin, just regular food. There's kodesh, right? That's the distinction that we've been talking about. All, you know, all these dapim, all these ma'alot have been to see the stringencies that are applied to kodesh, korban food, as opposed to regular food or the in-between category of truma. And now the Mishnah has a chumrah specifically about truma food that is not even necessarily applied to Kodesh, right? Meaning when we're talking, up until now, we've been talking about the stringencies for the Karbanot, for the sacrifices, and they didn't apply to Truma, meaning Truma was more makil, more lenient. But now we've got a stringency or a few stringencies that are applied to Truma over the Karbanot. So here we go. Homer bitruma, Homer bitruma, meaning literally it's more stringent with regard to Truma. So in the area of the land of Israel that was known as Judea, right, Yehuda, that was the, it's like the area of Jerusalem and the general environs, right? They were, everybody, everybody was considered trustworthy um, for the purity of wine and oil for all the years. I mean, if you had something, if you had wine that was consecrated, 
right? So you might say, well, doesn't that Am Haaretz status mean that those same people who are not so careful in general with regard to Tumantara are not going to be reliable when it comes to things like consecrated wine? And the answer is in Yehuda, they were. They were considered reliable specifically for um, for wine and oil, um, not elsewhere. Meaning it's specific to Yehuda. The Gemara goes on, tomorrow's daft, goes on to discuss not in the Galil and why not. But but this is about Yehuda, and this is indeed a it's a stringency. We're going to see the stringency in a moment. So what happens? Um, so meaning they were considered reliable when it came to Kodesh, consecrated wine, right? And then during the time of the year when they would be pressing the grapes and when they'd be pressing the olives, then those people, meaning even the Ameha Aretz, were trusted with regard to the purity of truma, meaning not just not just Kodesh, but even truma, which is a lesser a lesser um, a lesser level of purity, right, uh, or lesser requirement. Even the Amayarats were were included in, among those who would be considered reliable for whether something was Tamei Tahor and their hands, let's say, right. Every any contact with those barrels would have been just fine. Um, the specific here is. It comes to the fact that they are everybody is getting their vessels ready, meaning they're purifying their vessels to be able to receive the the wine and the oil. So the Ameharits also did this, at least in Yehuda. And then Avru Hagitot Vabadim, what happens when those time periods of actually pressing wine and pressing olives passed? Then Veviulo Truma. The there's a lot of like pronouns that are left out of this. I mean, the pronouns are there. The antecedents are not here in the case. If a uh, if an Am Haaretz were if Am Haaretz were to bring their barrels a chavit shal yayin shal truma a um, a truma wine to the kohen lo yikablenu so then the kohen is not going to accept it from the Am Haaretz during the time of year that is not during the pressing time. Aval minichalagat haba'a v'ima marlo afresh tochah v'riviit kodesh ne'aman. But if he would then, if the Amharits would then like leave the barrel aside and the next season of pressing, of wine pressing or oil pressing, would then bring the barrel then to the Kohen, right? Because that's the time of year when they are um, considered Nemanim, they're considered trustworthy for this. He's allowed to do so. The Kohen's allowed to accept it. Even if he says, you know, I pressed it, you know, back in, back during the year. And even so, he's still trusted then, um, you know, to to for his um, accountability or reliability with regard to this truma wine or truma oil, whatever. And the reason seems to be that during this time of heightened awareness, meaning everybody's getting their vessels ready and everybody's paying attention to the fact that their wine and their oils are are going to be considered Kodesh. Um, it's not about Kodesh. It's about being pure, right? That they have this ritual purity, then there's no, there's no concern or no suspicion cast upon even the Amehaaretz, the people who are not necessarily careful with regard to other issues of Tumantara. So then we're talking about jugs of wine or jugs of oil. Meaning this is something that is it's mingled. Like you might have coded, you might have truma in there and you might have not, um, not truma in there, right? What happens? So the Amehaaretz are trusted, again, to be able to say what we have in here is mingled wine or min- mingled oil. The kodem legito shivat yamim, shivim yom. Sorry, um, 
the and they are trusted not only during the specific time period of the pressing of the wine and the olive of the wine of the grapes and the olives, but also for seventy days beforehand, because that's when they begin to purify their vessels to get ready for the wine pressing season. So it seems that there is, you know, everybody was in on it, so to speak. And during that season of everybody being in on it, including the preparation time, then Truma was meaning they're treating Truma Batara, and even the Ameha Aretz are accepted for treating Truma Batara. The one puzzle I have here is that this is treated in the Mishnah here as a, a stringency, right? And to me, it seems in some ways like a leniency, right? Meaning the acceptance of of all people as reliable for the for this. Now, the only, unless it's a stringency to say that everybody must be careful about it. I'm not sure. Yodana, do you have any insight into that? No, I, I, I don't. It's a, that's a good question. In any case, we ha- there's commentaries on this, of course. It's interesting, but it's not relevant, so I'm going to leave it aside. Um, in any case, we're going to see more tomorrow about exactly why Yehuda was special in this regard and why the Galil, you know, another um, prominent area for Chazal's, you know, where they lived and and, you know, harvested and pressed their wines and their Grape, their grapes and their olives and so on, uh, why it was different there. Um, and I think that's it for today. Well, that's our gap discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about the stuff on our Talk Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.